and welcome to Crawford Media. Today, I'm speaking to a friend and phenomenon, Patrick Gower. Before I even reached New Zealand back in 2016, I made Paddy's acquaintance through his videos. Straight talking, unusual looking and smart ass. A powerful TV news combination. The most telling thing though, was that I had made his acquaintance. It felt like I knew Paddy. This is the X-Factor skill of the professional broadcaster. That ability to create the illusion of acquaintance through a one-way information exchange. The even more extraordinary thing about Paddy is that you do know him and what you see is what you get. An authentic, knockabout, tortured, driven, 100% pure journalist. My name is Patrick Gower, or everybody actually calls me Paddy Gower, or Paddy, and I'm the national correspondent for News Hub here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm also a fourth host on Monday nights on our version of the project, and for those over in Australia, News Hub screens on TV3 here, and so does the project. And on top of those uh, two jobs, I, I make documentaries as well, two or three a year, one hour long documentary specials on on is- issues of significance to New Zealand. So that's me, Paddy. And Paddy, I wanted to talk to you today. Well, one, I just wanted to catch up with you again because uh, I think uh, you, you're one of the most colourful, uh, <laughs> communicative and uh, just, just one of the best people that I was involved with over in uh, New Zealand media when I was working there. But also... You are a sort of triple-A media communicator. So having said that, I want to get into what that costs you and what that means in a modern media environment. So why don't we start with you, yourself, and how you got into media? Yeah, there's no great plan to any of my career, and that includes sort of becoming a, a, a journalist. And to be honest, it really was a case of, my parents really wanted me to go to university, which I did. And, you know, I hadn't gone so great at school, so I, I didn't have the greatest grades in the world. I couldn't couldn't get into law school and, and, and anything like that. So I, I came and did a Bachelor of Arts. And before I knew it, I'd finished that. And there was no way that I was ready for the real world, for a job, or I didn't even know what I wanted to do. So I did an honours year and that was suddenly finished and I still wasn't ready for the real world, had no idea what I wanted to do and didn't have the skills to do it. So then I did my journalism diploma. So really it was just a case of just trying to find something to do that kind of, you know, it was desperation to avoid the workforce initially. (laughs) 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 And, and, but then when I, when I started the journalism course, you know, I, I really did find my calling you know i can even remember being on that course just really enjoying it and particularly doing really well when i went out on the work experience and it just took over you know and 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 before i knew it you know i had a entry-level job on the night shift at the new zealand herald and and from there my career it just it just took off i was just obsessed by journalism i just loved it i didn't care what it was you know whether it was a cat up a tree literally and um, because that was the kind of thing that i used to cover i would just be so into it and motivated to find out more information even if it was for the lead brief on page three which was the, one of the main ways that i could get into the paper you couldn't get a byline on it but you could get into the paper late at night 
And it just took over for me how it just absolutely took over my life. It is a calling for me right from those junior days. I can remember almost all the stories I did with quite a lot of level of detail. And we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of stories where I've got a really good memory of how I did them or what they were about or what happened behind the scenes. And that just led me into, you know, the amazing world of print journalism uh, led me into political journalism, uh, led me into television, uh, broadcast journalism, and now documentaries. 22 years of the most amazing adventure and brilliant career. Mm. It has been a brilliant career and continues to be a brilliant career for anyone who doesn't know your work. I've just got a question to ask you about police rounds. Now, you're quite sensitive as a person and my experience of police rounds was one of anxiety especially the late night shift you're always trying to get the story because as you say you want to get into the paper and you want to do well so that's one kind of pressure but there's also that pressure of having to go out late at night and cover stuff did you feel that yeah i thrived on it i loved getting out late at night going in because, you know, this is 22 years ago, How and this is when you had to sign out a mobile phone. You know, you didn't actually even have your own and sign out a car and, and head out into Auckland into whatever part there'd been some sort of particular kind of crime. And I, I loved doing that, even though even though it was nighttime or, or later when I got onto the actual police round itself in daytime. And, you know, I come back to the word adventure and human contact, you know, I, crime meant it could happen anywhere to any kind of sector of society in any part of Auckland. And it was just an adventure getting out to particular suburbs that might be a certain sort of ethnicity or, or you know, that might be a poor area, it might be a rich area, it might have Pakia people, it might be Māori or Tongans or whatever. And admittedly, it was a crime, which meant you weren't there for a good reason, but it was taking me into all different parts of this amazing city on a daily basis and meeting all different kinds of people and learning about how a city and, and society worked. I wasn't thinking about it that way at the time. I was just thinking about how do I get a good yarn out of this? Or, you know, and when you got somewhere, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, looking back now, it was just giving me this this amazing insight into the way that people live in Auckland and New Zealand, the kinds of things that society kind of grapples with through crime. It was like an, a full-on study of, of society because it hits, it hit, as everybody knows, it sort of hits it hits everybody. And I was, I'd, I'd get through a huge amount of human contact by going out and dealing with people and, and just getting really, really good skills at dealing face-to-face with people. And, it's, and an that's, extraordinary, that's, it's an extraordinary privilege, isn't it, to have that licence to ask people anything yeah and it was a different time in a lot of ways i mean i was talking to some people about it you know the other day and and talking about death knocks which i used to do a a lot of and your listeners will be familiar with those particularly those who are of a, a a little bit older which was when you would have to go and you know, knock on the door of someone who, who'd lost someone either through a murder or or through a car accident or motorcycle accident or, or what have you. And in those days, the, you know, Facebook wasn't around. And, and, and one of the things when you were working for a newspaper was, you know, you really needed to get the photograph of, of someone who died to, to, to make the story and for people to see it and, and feel something, if you, if you think about it that way. And, you know, I used to do that where you'd 
ask the family for a photograph of a loved one. And, and back in those days, we'd take it into town and, and someone would take a photo of it. I don't think we even really had scanners. And then you'd take it back to the family. And you really learned through that how respect and trust and if someone's if you're going to go to someone who's lost someone and ask them for a photo and they literally take it off the mantelpiece and you drive it into town and then you've got to take it back to them the next day once your story's in the paper you learn how to respect that person and what you tell them when you go and get that photo and what kind of story you're going to do you really you really learn those kind of values now the reason I, I bring this up is that that's largely lost to young journalists today because if someone dies, you Google their name and there's actually hundreds, if not thousands of photos of them on their Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever. And that skill set, which is what it is, of, of dealing with a family and grief is, is, is being lost to a lot of people. And it's a pretty ugly kind of side of journalism and some people who aren't in it and even people who are journalists were like, I just cannot do that. You know, I've heard people, you know, virtually have to leave the profession because they were so scared of doing that. But that was something that I did and and I got a lot from it because I, 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 I learned how to respect people and respect the connection that I would gain with people and use that in a positive and truthful way for them. And that's something that I'm still doing today, albeit on a sort of little bit of a higher level. But you know, that's that's one of those lessons from those early days as a police reporter. It's um, just hearing you talk about that uh, really hit home for me and I experience exactly the same thing and actually it helps me in many other areas of life because once you've been in, I mean, there is nothing quite as dreadful as that feeling of having to go and um, speak to a a family in grief, knowing that you're doing it out of your own self-interest and then realising that you have to transform that into something that they can use in their grief, like, you know, tell me about the person you've lost or, you know, you want to talk, I'm here to talk, but if you want to tell me to piss off, then I'll leave. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, uh, often you, you could make a beautiful tribute to people, you know, and, and, that's, and that's great. And then... Some of the time they would tell you, you know, where to go and, you know, maybe they'd use sort of sort of a lot firmer kind of language like that and you were you know, you were intruding on their grief. And that's a that's a pretty awful area to be in. And as you say, I am a sensitive person. But it did give you that human connection and contact and that and that skill dealing with people in that situation. Let me ask you, because it's come up, have you ever abused that trust or felt bad about the way you did something because it wasn't in that spirit of respect? I can't. There's not ones that I can really pinpoint, but definitely being honest in those early years, you were probably run a, a little bit more roughshod than, than you should, you know, and I think I would have definitely had that problem. But there's no sort of really specific area where I've definitely abused someone's trust or whatever. And and quite the opposite, in fact, now, where I've got to a point in my in my career and my ability to do work where I actually say to people, don't worry, I won't let you down. I promise you, I promise you, you will feel better after this. I would not put you through this if, if you didn't want to do it or if I thought it was going to be bad for you. I give you my word that this will come out good. Mm. Now, that ability to 
really broadly communicate with a huge audience and connect on an emotional level, that's really only possible because you made the move from print to TV and then effectively from TV into longer form documentary making. Tell me about your move into TV. Yes, I came from from the New Zealand Herald. I'd had about 10 years in print and I was a political journalist at the time and going great guns really in, in print at that point. And Duncan Garner, who was a television journalist out here, he was the political editor and he noticed me around the, the gallery and said, do you want to come over to TV? Which I was interested in, in doing as a challenge, I guess, or a, I'd, I'd always sort of thought, yeah, that'd be good. I'd never really thought it, thought more than that or had a plan or anything like that. And next minute I was in this, this world of TV with no training, no background, nothing, zero and didn't understand it, didn't understand the language in it. I was on screen, um, didn't understand how it was made. It was a pretty crazy thing to do looking back on it. And it, it was actually incredibly, incredibly difficult learning process, and it, and it was not easy. I was not a natural, as the New Zealand listeners will be, will be thinking. I was actually crap. And there was a lot of talk about the way that I looked and a lot of, t- you know, my, my physical looks and, and, and my performance. And I've often said that if social media had been a bit more entrenched at the time, I probably wouldn't have lasted because of the amount of grief that I, that I would have got, you know. But I got through that. And as anyone who's worked, and there, you, there will be a lot of people listening who've worked in difficult jobs after one or two years, they do get a bit easier and you learn a lot in that period if you can persevere through the really, really tough times. And that's what I did. So look, long story short, Hal, because we are Junos here, the headline is I was utter crap (laughs) 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 at TV (laughs) for for a little while. Yeah. So you were crap for a little while and then you found your stride. And when I came across you, you are unique in that you don't have a TV voice. The way that you sound on air and the, and the phrasing that you use and the cadence of your speech is the same on TV as it is when you meet Patty in real life. You get the same thing. How did you achieve that and how is it that other people cannot achieve that? Yeah, well, TV is an incredibly powerful medium and I know that through working in it and I know that through now working in the in the documentary format and and for your Australian viewers the kind of documentaries that that we make have got very very high production values and uh, television is just so powerful uh, as a medium and I, I always said when I was in print it was like you had a scalpel you know and you could do a very delicate journalistic operation uh, and then come over to TV and they hand you an axe and you can't do the delicate kind of stories that you used to do over in print. But if you can line it up straight, you can act with very, very powerful journalism. And we know all of this about TV through its all of the studies and everything. And the and the biggest cliche in the world is that a picture is a picture is worth a thousand words. And that's the power of TV, its ability to show emotion and learn stuff off it really quickly. So 
in politics, which is what I used to learn in, you know, you could see the you'd see the whites of a politician's eyes as they answer a question. And that was a very, very powerful way of using television in, in the political environment. And for me personally, out of desperation initially, uh, and then uh, over time, worked on being authentic in front of the camera. And, a, and another cliche is the camera never lies. And being able to be authentic, whether you're a broadcaster like myself or, or someone who gets on television in front of in front of the camera for a documentary who's never been on TV before but they 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 start to show their real side or an actor who gets in front of a camera and tries to look like the kind of person you want in your documentary all three people in that setting the the outcome that everyone's looking for the most powerful outcome is do you have authenticity coming out of the camera do you jump out of the screen do people feel like the actor is real do people connect with the real sto- have you got the real story out of the person who's never been on camera before do people connect with them or do they connect with you as the broadcaster they feel like they are talking to you or that they you know that you are talking to them in their living room and and through that there's never been a great plan or anything for me but through having a having to survive and just get better and then and then b realizing that the the way to do that is 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 by being yourself and and talking as if you're you know talking to your grandmother or what i used to do when i was in parliament and reporting on complicated political things was i would go if i was to walk out of this place right now and walk over to the pub and my mates were standing around alina with a beer waiting for me how would I tell them before my first sip of the beer what had happened over at Parliament that day? One of the things that you've done is expose yourself on national TV, and I don't mean expose <laughs> yourself. Yeah. I mean, I mean, much more importantly, expose, reveal some vulnerabilities that you have. You mentioned that you were given a hard time about the way that you look. You've also opened up about your mum, and you've opened up about, in particular, a poor interview that you did that that I was actually- I was Around very, for. <laughs> I was very close to you when that was happening, so I feel partially responsible. Tell me, and, and we'll go into these, we'll go into these things if, if we may later in detail, but just tell me about the way that you view this internally. The way that I think about it is that you are paying a price in order to communicate. In other words, you are actually exposing yourself and for a sensitive person, I think that that comes at a cost. Is that the way that you think about it? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, and a lot of this has happened after, or all of it has happened actually after I, I kind of worked in, in politics and in my career really snuck up on me. Like I never, it's interesting reflecting, I never had a plan to even get into journalism and I just ended up in it. And and as I said, it was an adventure and Part of that has been that I never thought about what had happened along the way and 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 never caught up with everything that was really happening. And in in pol- politics and parliament, you know, I was just you know I was just a bit of a, a journalistic thug in some ways, and and people didn't know a lot about me when my suit and tie wasn't on and when I wasn't talking about politics. And there, there were you know there were all these sorts of aspects of my life that that I hadn't. I just kept them kind of shut away, Hal. So when I got out of that, I was like, ah, oh, 
it, you know, different things would happen and I'd be in different places. And and I, I do remember talking to some journalism students one day and I ran them through some stories that I'd done and I showed them all of these different techniques that, that, that I'd used in this particular story. And, you know, you use these pictures there and you wait for this bit of sound to come up here and then you introduce this fact about this guy here and it was this highly intricate story and, and all of these journalism students sat there, you know, watching and here I was in my mind giving them this masterclass in how to put a story together. And at the end of it, there's some questions and a couple of the polite ones asked questions about the story that I'd told them about. And then one of them put up her hand and said, oh, I would like to do what you do, but I'm worried about what people will say about me on social media and the way that I look and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden I saw the whole room eyes kind of light up and they were actually engaged and interested in what I was going to say to this answer. And for me it was a real sort of, oh, okay, these guys, all right, well, yeah, okay, well, let's talk about this then. And I remember I said to her, I said, and to all of them, if I had for one minute listened to what people said to me about the way that I look and I had stopped doing this job because of what people said, can you imagine everything that I would have missed out on in my life by listening to them? what they would have stopped, all of these adventures and fantastic experiences and different things that I've done for people. And I would have missed out on all of it if I'd listened to listen to those kind of people. And you guys have got nothing to worry about. You know, you shouldn't even be thinking about stuff like that. And I just noticed that they were really amazed by what I'd said to them. They were kind of blown away. Um, forget about the amazing story about going into the Pike River mine and on the west coast that I'd spent 45 minutes explaining. This one minute had been way more powerful and connected with them way more. And that just kind of got me to thinking, well, what if I did it somewhere else, somewhere bigger, if I said something like this? And as life kind of throws these things your way, two weeks later there was an anti-bullying campaign being run out of News Hub and someone at work said, oh, is there any, would you do something on this? <laughs> and, I, and I just thought to myself, oh, it's meant to be. Um, so I wrote something and then I set it on the project along the lines of just what we've talked about now, that, that I was teased and that coming into television was difficult and don't let your looks hold you back. And I was, it was a similar reaction to, to what I'd got in the classroom with the students from people all over the uh, all over the Rohi or all, all over New Zealand, as we say here, saying, wow, I can't, you know, that's such a powerful message and thank you so much for saying it. And while I was blown away by what they were saying, I, I did feel to myself how that it was, well, it wasn't actually that hard for me to say, say this. I was like, this is a quite an intriguing little exercise because that was actually no biggie for me. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, uh, and that just showed me that, yep, sharing some some things about me and people could get some, find some solace and some understanding themselves and, and more, more so than big investigations or remarkable pieces of journalism, it could be just as powerful. Well, let's talk about the second example that I brought up, your mum, which was a very emotional scene in your documentary, Patrick Gow on Weed 
which I, I do recall we had some discussions about the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your mum. Now, the, the aspect of this that I wanted to discuss with you was when do you feel it, there's a risk, isn't there, of, of selling your own life to the public? Certainly, I've seen people feel like this, that they feel like they're exploiting their private life for public gain. Did that cross your mind in regards to that emotional scene? No, no, I think, you know, and that's a pretty valid kind of thing, you know, are you just going to sort of chuck everything out there to get yourself some Instagram likes or ratings or clicks or, or whatever, and, and and that's definitely not my vibe. With my mum, and for, for your listeners from Australia, my mum died of cancer and of lung cancer, and it was an incredibly, as everyone who's seen cancer, it's an awful time. So when I made the documentary on Cannabis and medical cannabis in particular was a was a big issue as well as as well as the actual recreational side. With the director Justin Hawkes, he was like, "Oh, you could talk about you, you could talk about your mum," and I was like, "Oh, maybe let me think about it." And uh, then he was like, "Oh, you could you could interview your dad about your mum," and I was like, "Oh, yeah, let me think about it." And in the end, I I, I kind of thought, "Oh, yeah, this will be yeah." Uh, a good idea and make it real for people and, and show that I wanted to learn about how medical cannabis could have helped my mum as she was suffering at the end. And and to get into that, interviewed my dad, which if if people haven't seen it, they can they can watch it. It's a pretty remarkable interview. Because like a lot of people, I, I guess I thought I'd talked to my father about my mother's death or I guess I th- but then when we actually sat down <laughs> and the cameras were rolling, I was I did realise, no, we actually haven't had mm-hmm. a chat about this ever. So it created a r- remarkable, I'll never forget, the. it was like the whole world sort of shut down for a second and actually the cameras sort of disappeared and raw emotion, really, that people could see from, from my dad and I. I can't think of a, a, another scene like it in a in a documentary or piece of journalism in, in New Zealand and it had just had a huge amount of cut through for people in New Zealand. There's so many people have been in that position and so deeply, deeply scarred by it. But yep, you know, I, I, it's a it's a very private aspect of my life that was given up. But at the same time, I know that my mum, who never lived to see me work in TV, by the way, um, but she did enjoy reading my stories in the Herald, I feel deep down that it's something that she would be really, really proud of. You know, she would be like, yeah, that's a, that's a nice tribute to me for you to do that. And I think she'd also be really proud that people have got to know the real Patty over the last three or four years and not just the Patty at Parliament with a suit and tie on. I, I think I, I do think that she would like that as well. And I think she would like that, you know, I do let some stuff out, but I, I keep a lot of stuff kind of private as well and and I do keep the focus on the journalism ultimately you know I haven't turned into I hate even saying it I haven't turned into a celebrity I'm a hard-working journo after all these years the third example that I'd like to to bring up is is the interview with um, Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux that you conducted in the news hub basement it wasn't a good interview and normally as professionals we don't like to bring up you know, our low points. Walk me through what happened that day. 
Yeah, so Stefan Molyneux and, and Lauren Southern, uh, you know, are, ex- are, are extreme YouTubers who were, you know, rock stars of YouTube back in 2018 when they came to New Zealand and were trying to have a speaking event in Auckland, which brought about a huge amount of protest and and people were trying to stop it and there was a free speech sort of debate happening and eventually they couldn't find a venue, such was the opposition. And I was chasing them for a news story that... We haven't just uh, made clear exactly why people dislike them. Oh, yeah. So, you know, people dislike them because basically, you know, it was this sort of this um, pseudo-science that that threw up questions of racial inferiority and, and sort of tried to put some science around it. And basically, it is a bedrock to to ideas of intellectually fake, in my view, bedrock to white supremacy ideas. Bear in mind, I didn't really know all of this at the time. I kind of knew the bare minimum about them, really, and was chasing them around town and and seeing them get cancelled and stuff like that. And in the course of this, it was kind of like, oh, maybe we would, maybe I should try and interview them, and not just for a news story, but get an interview with them and take them on in an interview. And, of course, these people spend all of their time perfecting their arguments and their ideas, and and I didn't know a lot about them. And in the end, I interviewed them. We live-streamed the interview on News Hub. Um, that was very, very quickly cut, disseminated around their massive YouTube following millions and millions of followers around the world where they sort of destroyed me as an as an interviewer and look at this lame interview and et cetera, et cetera. And the truth is they did. You know, I should never, ever have interviewed them unprepared in a live format like that. And that was my ego basically getting the better of me. And you're right, we don't I spent a long time working in Parliament where I would spend all of my time convincing myself that I was right and whatever had happened the day before, I'd kind of come out on top of and 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 whether it was true or not, I'd, I'd convince myself of that and never admit that I was wrong, um, never admit that I'd failed or anything like that. And it soon became really apparent to me that I had failed in that interview and in fact, even on the day, I started talking about it. And then as time went on, I realized that the failure was deeper and deeper and worse than I ever imagined. Because as I started to look into what their ideas meant and the more I spent researching them, because I, I had to research them afterwards to find out what what had I done, you know, and, and, and how bad was it. And over, over time, I just realized that it was actually really, really terrible what I'd done giving them a platform to these absolutely abhorrent ideas. I just can't believe that I did it. And it became really bad. And people in New Zealand who've seen my latest documentary on on hate will realise this, but on, on March the 15th, 2019, so it was actually only about six months later, there was a terrorist attack in Christchurch. And at that point, I, I realised, I was like, I bet you, I bet you this, this guy was a supporter of theirs because by that point I knew how much influence they had in this in this space. Putting all of that together, you know, just to have given them a platform, even though I'd 
started admitting that it was wrong, I just knew that it was really, really wrong, like beyond a personal failure. And and part of the documentary that I've done, you know, really owns up to that. People will see we I actually go through the interview with an expert on the far right, distinguished professor Paul Spoonley, you know, who blow by blow takes me apart. <laughs> but it needed to be done because one, just to get it off my own chest, but two, just so that other people can learn to people who are listening, who are, who are professionals, the only way to improve as a professional is to sometimes admit that you made a mistake and try and learn from that. It's actually so hard to do. It is so hard to do. We are not geared towards it at all. And to do it on a personal level is really, really empowering. Uh, and that's that's what I've learned from it. You know, it's it, it's made me so much better as not just as a journalist, but as a person to be able to admit that that I'm not all that I used to crack myself up to be, and that my ego got the better of me, and that I let a lot of people down. In fact, I let society down, let profession down, and and you know, it's it's been good for me to do that. It's it's interesting to me that you have been conducting your career without a roadmap, so to speak. From the outside, you wouldn't know that. I, I guess that means you don't know where you're heading next. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of like a, I. It's interesting you use the term roadmap, and that's right. I don't really know where I'm heading next, and it's almost like going back and charting my own roadmap at the moment to kind of try and understand how I've got to where I've where I've got to. I'm kind of doing it in reverse. But what I do like when I look back is actually my roadmap, as chaotic as it has been, has make does make a lot of sense. And I'm now trying to use all of the skills that I've gained along the way, right from being a, a young print journal, a crime journal, a young political reporter, a more senior political reporter, television print all of the people that I've met in New Zealand. I know people up and down the country and all different parts of it. And I've had a huge amount of experience reporting in New Zealand, overseas, big events. And I'm trying to add all of that roadmap together and create things that are innovative and different and challenge myself and use all of those kind of skills at once, which has led me to these these documentaries or if I'm if I'm doing the debate between the, the leaders which I've done a couple of times now and, and things like things like that at the very, very top level, I guess, where I know that I'm using all of this where I'm using my gifts and my and my experience to for the better of New Zealand. So so that's a that's a long way of saying I'm I'm really happy doing what I'm doing at the moment. I think the road has got to a, a good point and and to carry on the analogy, Hal, I just want to put it in cruise control and try and enjoy this a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not too sure that you're a cruise control sort of person. <laughs> what, what, what about Paddy What about Patty for an international audience or an Australian audience, you know? Is there any, in your non-existent roadmap, is there any sort of sketched out, oh, I'll try to see if I can communicate with, with a non-Kiwi audience, with an Australian yeah. audience, for example? Yeah, no, I'd really like to try and do that. It's, it's a goal of mine. When you when you do this kind of work, and it's 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 good to be honest, and it's good to say when when you put so much effort into making something, the, you want as many people to. I'm, I'm interested in people watching things. I'm interested in getting it to big audiences. I think that's where 
the power of of bringing ideas is is if you can get them to people and get them to engage. So yes, I would love to see if my style of journalism could work in an, with an overseas audience. Yeah, because in New Zealand, almost no one doesn't know you. I mean, just to, that's just to put it in context for for people who you know Australians or anyone outside of New Zealand. I mean, I've walked down the street with you or I've been in pubs with you and people just want to come up and say hello. Yeah, yeah, people want to come and say good day and and that's an awesome feeling. 99% of the time, there's obviously every now and then where it's just like, hang on, you know, I, I really don't need this in my life right now. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you've got to, got to sort of take it. But, yeah, it's an awesome feeling to be, you know, to uh, – for people to want to talk to you about about your work and about different things, and it's it's a cool feeling. And and also, I've found that Kiwis have a lot of good ideas for documentaries. I think you know if I had a, if I if I could have, I should have written them all down, but most of them come up and go, "Hey, I was thinking you should do one on this and one on this and one on this." You know, so they've always got ideas for me of things to do. It's all yeah. good. Paddy, thank you so much for talking to me. It is. Uh Wonderful to talk to you again. I knew that you were one of my favourite people that I'd worked with and now you've just sort of reminded me why. Yeah, yeah, well, you're one of my favourite people to work with as well, so it's awesome to talk with you as well, Hal. Thanks for listening to Crawford Media. And can I ask you for your help? It would be brilliant if you could pass the podcast on to your friends. Thanks as always to Kevin McLeod for the podcast music. Bye for now.